I only plucked one of my eyebrows. Welcome to episode 13 of The Failure Show. I'm Ben Frank. And I'm Ida Knox. And it is maybe the loveliest day of the year so far in Shanghai. I watched um, seven episodes of Modern Family this morning, so I really took advantage of that, I think. <laughs> seven and, seven episodes? Yeah. They're short. They're like 20 minutes. I, I know. I'm familiar with the show. I've, 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 I've watched it. I, I haven't... I, I've, I've been living in in China, but not under a rock All for right. the past. Well, I I wasn't saying it like you've never seen it. It was just you know it's the one thing my mom and I have in common that you watch that we both love this show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Who? Uh, how How did you <laughs> discover that? Or well, my mom routinely texts me with like, "Oh, I'm watching such and such show. Have you seen it? Or like, do you have a good show recommendation?" What she doesn't know, I think it's safe. She definitely doesn't listen to this podcast. What she doesn't know is that like I will outsource her TV recommendations. So she'll say like, "Oh, I want to watch a show about X." And I'll just, like, text a friend and be like, hey, what's a good show about that? So I recommended Breaking Bad to her, never seen it. Narcos to her, never seen it. And she's enjoyed all of them. Um, But Modern Family is actually one where she texted me, because she'll do this as well. And she was like, oh, my God, I just love this new TV show. And I was like, what's it called? And she was like, lots of different people, one Hispanic. And I was like, okay, please be more specific. And she was talking about my family, and so that's something that we actually have in common. Ah, okay. Well, that's that is a way to describe that show. Lots of different people, one Hispanic. I actually find it really touching that she likes this show because I think that they push for a lot of social issues that she doesn't agree with. Yeah, well, that's why I was kind of surprised because you've you've told me a thing or two about. Mom, I've never spoken about you to anyone, but people might know that you you know, are slightly, she's on the more conservative edge of things. Right. So it, it surprised me as well when you mentioned that. I think that they do a good job of pitching things like in a way where she feels welcomed. Like, you know, when, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the show, but there's a gay wedding in the show. Yep, and yeah, the, one that. of the fathers, actually both of the fathers of the grooms are very uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that for my mom, that was like an in. Like, it was a way to be like, oh, well, like, I too would be uncomfortable with it, but would like to think that I'd love my son anyway. But I think it made her feel more welcome, whereas if they'd just been like, everyone needs to accept this right now, and all the characters were on board, she would have been like, oh, where do I fit? But she fit with, like, the old white man who felt entitled, <laughs> was not <laughs> accepting in the beginning. I'm so sorry, Mom. <laughs> Okay, so I guess what you're saying is your your mom is an old white man. In in terms of entitlement, absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. All right, well, yeah, that's uh, that's not where. So 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 I guess the moral of the story is Ida has not been outside yet today. Yep. And she she blew, she blew this glorious day, but in the process, I, I discovered no, I, an amazing I, I, connection she has with her mother. All right, shove off. Yeah, I went outside once, but not really worth it. You just did mention it. I went to yoga. I, wa- okay. I walked to yoga and I walked back. That's really all I did. It's it's so it's so funny. I feel like <laughs> half of our intros you somehow mentioned going to yoga. Because like, we somehow- always record on like Saturdays, which is the day of the week that I go to yoga. 
Okay. Well, <laughs> it, it basically, from this podcast, people know we we go to the comedy club. You go to yoga. I occasionally go to the gym. We do nothing else. Oh, you easily talk about the gym as much, if not more, than I talk about yoga. That's what I'm saying. This is I know, like, but you said you go to yoga. I occasionally go to the gym. Don't yeah. even lie. You bring it up as much, if not more, than I bring up yoga. All right. Well, we'll have to go through and have a formal count of mentions. I don't know if I'm going to want to do that. But yeah, if, if we I, have any longtime listeners who have been tracking this data, yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to say you've mentioned yoga more than I've mentioned going to the gym. But uh, we'll we'll have to settle that another day. Yep. Okay. Well, we got a great show for you guys. Let's let's just go right into uh, fail or pass. Fail or pass. Okay. So this is fail or pass. The segment every week where uh, Ida and I discuss topics from the news and uh, she gets I get over- upset. Yeah, she gets upset. So. I'm going to get so upset today. So. I'm going to get so upset. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, and let me welcome uh, our guest for today, uh, Alex Wilson. Hello. Thanks for uh, coming on The Failure Show. Thank you for having me. It's very kind of you. I'm, I'm honored to be invited. To be considered a failure. To be considered a failure. <laughs> that, is, that is an honor. And we're going to do things a little bit differently today because normally Ida and I would supply the stories, but Alex has a story of his own, so he's going to supply the story yeah. today. 30 seconds in, I've already ruined the podcast. I like it. I think you should start, too, because to be entirely honest, when I bring my story up, I'm never going to be able to calm down from it. It's going to color the rest of my day. Um, Uh, yeah, (laughs) everyone looks miserable at that thought, but yeah, um, if you're ready and if not, yeah, so I was, um, this wasn't on purpose. I just read this before I came here and I thought it would be absolutely perfect. Um, so this is, shall I just read the article? This is from, uh, the guardian, uh, today. Mm. Um, wow, we never branch out with our news sources. Yeah. (laughs) The the British media, we're getting international. Yeah. Very good. It's, it's not the New York Times. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. The organizers of a luxury music festival in the Bahamas have apologized after the event descended into chaos, drawing comparisons to The Hunger Games and The Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Fire Festival on the private uh, Great Exumus Island had been billed as a cultural moment for money millennials, with tickets costing up to US dollars for a four-person package. The event was due to feature performances from Blink-182, Skepta, and Ray Srimmerd, and run over two weekends from 28th of April. One of the organisers, rapper Ja Rule, reportedly toasted during a site visit to living like movie stars, partying like rock stars, and fucking like porn stars. Oh dear. But after headliners Blink-182 pulled out on Friday, citing poor infrastructure, ticket holders arrived on Great Exumus Islands to chaotic scenes. Oh boy. Posts on social media drew comparisons to a refugee camp, with disaster relief tents being used as cabanas in expanses of mud, mountains of rubbish, and low-quality sandwiches. Yeah, I did see the low quality. I fo- I have followed this story um, just for every. I don't think Ben knows it, but I have followed it since the very beginning. Yeah, passively. this this is the first time hearing about this story. So <laughs> I figured it might be okay, but it sounds sounds captivating. I mean, yeah. Uh, so basically, everyone's stuck on the island. Well, a bit stuck. with with low quality sandwiches. Have you seen the sandwich? I've not picture? seen the pictures. I've just oh, seen. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> I have so, so many fails. Okay, so how are we evaluating this item? Yes, um, for me. Okay, 
So I think the pass-fail should um, fall to two different categories. I think it's two... Well, I think one is host, host the people who hosted the festival. And the reason why is because I've also read about this. And they didn't outsource. And so the reason everything fell apart is they tried to, like, DIY. Um, oh, which okay. did not work out. And the other thing I think should fail is anyone who's paying that amount of money to go to an event that is billed like that. I just think that's right. It rough. sounds very much like you're <laughs> leading the witness the way you... Uh, um, yeah, because I obviously am failing this on like 14 counts. I just yeah. gave you two of them. Okay. There's, there's a great quote at the end where he apologizes and goes, we were a little naive, and this is one of the organizers, we were a little naive in thinking that for the first time we could do this ourselves. Next time, next year, we'll definitely start earlier. Yeah. It's just, you know... Okay. Do you do you have any facet of this that you would like for us to try and pass, uh, or any anyone that you're kind of giving a pass to out of curiosity? Uh, purely to play devil's advocate, I'm going to argue that the poor innocent millennials paying twelve thousand US dollars for a ticket to this music festival deserve better. Frankly, they were promised fucking like porn stars, and uh, the event organizers did not deliver. That's true. Yeah, I mean, that, that I think is true. If, if something's billed as a luxury, whatever, and you're paying an exorbitant sum of money, you can, you can argue as to whether that's um, ridiculous that anything, any music festival should cost that much. But if you're paying that much, then someone should be delivering, delivering something. That's yes. I don't know. I, I fail it wholeheartedly on all counts, but I did enjoy watching it happen on Instagram in a really so like I also fail in this situation definitely. Well, um, and then and then isn't there now like the irony that this was supposed to be, you know, because if you brought these kind of influencers and these people who are such you know big personalities. And you put on this amazing event, it would like it would have been like great press. Oh, for yeah, it. you've you've amplified your but fail. You've amplified your failure because oh, now yeah. all these well, people yeah. who everyone follows on Instagram are just showing you how terrible this I, is. I followed it on Instagram. I want to say like twelve hours before it started happening on like the Times and the Guardian. Like it, nice. it started happening on Instagram with just like complete disaster. Which I do follow an embarrassing number of like quote influencers on Instagram, but I work in media, so it makes sense. But That's your job. yeah, um, okay. are we passing or failing, guys? Uh, I mean, overall, I'm I'm failing this. I think that seems to be the relative consensus in in the room. I I, I think yeah, I think we've reached consensus with this. Right. Well, I, that was a fun topic, though. Cool. Okay. You want to get controversial and complicated? Yeah, let's go. I do. I okay. So, this is an article from, shockingly, the New York Times. The um, only news source that we have. All right, come on. I got billed for it again today. Like, I'm going to utilize it. I, I get billed for it every month, too, but this is, this is, this is, our, this is our trope on this show. <laughs> well, we have one news source. You guys are supporting traditional proper journalism, so, so well done to you. Paying, paying for news. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the article is, and I don't know how much of this I'll have to explain to you guys, Methodist High Court rejects first openly gay bishops' consecration. Oh. So if you don't understand that off the front, um, and for any listeners that might not, Methodist is a sect of Christianity. It's actually the one that my family belongs to now, but growing up we were Presbyterian. Um, the High Court is just the people who kind of like, it's, like uh, the Methodist version of the Vatican. Mm -hmm. And basically they shut down 
The interesting thing here is that she is a woman, which doesn't make the headline, but for some sects of Christianity and for some religions would have in and of itself been a big deal, but was not. So she's a woman. She... Um, so the United Methodist Church highest court has ruled that the consecration of its first openly gay bishop violated church law. So she did get consecrated, but then the highest court like basically said this is not good. Six to three vote made public on Friday. So the reason this is a huge deal, and I'll explain the like pass fail factors Wait, in a second. Have you did you mention why it violated the law? Because According, yes, so those who consecrated her were in violation of their, quote, commitment to abide by and uphold the church's definition of marriage and stance on homosexuality. Now, the issue is, is that the Methodist church has been split for quite some time on all of its lower levels on whether or not they're accepting of homosexuality. So the Methodist church that I went to, which was in small town Mississippi, didn't actively say, like, oh, it's completely cool, but I think would have done gay weddings in the church and also had openly gay members attending the church, and they were totally fine with it and embraced those people as members of the church. Hmm. We're talking, like, small-town Mississippi there. Now, I'm sure there's Methodist churches that don't necessarily have that view, but it is, like, an increasingly common view, and the Methodists... Their whole thing is open hearts, open doors. And the open doors part has broadly been interpreted to mean that they embrace homosexuality and they're down with that. They're also like kind of seen in the world of Christianity as sort of like on the forefront of social issues. They have women in charge of things. Women can preach. Women can whatever. So they're quite liberal by They're quite liberal standards. by church standards. Like very liberal by church standards. However, according to like high up Methodist doctrine they're still like anti-homosexuality and they sort of have been for a while. So I, two questions. One, for the people who are accepting gays into the church and are super like pro that and kind of propagating that very liberal, should they like just break off? Are they failing in the fact that they're still just like clinging to the structure of the Methodist church, even though it's saying no. And for the people who are up at the top, are they sort of failing in the fact that they're not really passing down like a hard and fast rule on this? Because they're saying like, oh, like someone who is gay can't be a bishop, but like we love everybody and accept everybody and they're welcome in the church. But they can't, but they're not possibly good enough to be a bishop or they're failing in this one sin factor. Because one of the big things about Methodists, right, all sin is equal. It's sort of a complicated question, but if they're going to say... Yeah, and I think it's very simple and straightforward. Yeah. Um, doesn't really need any discussion, right? It's just, it's a very, it's a very simple topic that we're... That yeah, we're really, Ben is being sarcastic, I think. Yeah. Um, but, like, if somebody is going to say, and I, I don't mean, like, they should change their whole rule, but my question is kind of, like, should they have just kicked her out then? Like, should they have had a more hard stand... On it, if they're gonna say that somebody who's gay can't be a bishop, then should somebody who's gay like not be able? If, if that's their hard line, so well, both sides of it, I'm curious. I'd also say, so cards on the table. I'm definitely a non-religious person who doesn't know anything about the church at all. So everything sort of comes from that point of view. Okay. But if you're her, do you want to be part of this church? If they're like, yeah, we'll give you kind of low-level status, but you can't be like one of the high-status people. Yeah. We don't, we don't want you gay guys doing that. What? Right, and that's what I mean. Like, she's married, and so that's what I mean. Like, should these people who are still like saying like, oh, we're embracing the Methodist Church, but 
they're not embracing us back, should they just break it off and be like, we believe everything that the... I know there's a lot of financial reasons not to, but from an ideological perspective, Mm -hmm. should should they step out? There's a lot of them. It's a huge portion of Methodist believers at this point. So it's not like a, a single instance. Well, and I mean like different, yeah, I mean, I don't know that much about religion either, but it, I mean, it seems like whatever sect of religion you're involved in, like they all kind of evolve slightly over time in terms of their beliefs or how they deal with, yeah, with certain sure. issues. And like, I don't know to what extent, like, like I think if you're in a church and you're a part of that church, there's some obligation on you to abide by the beliefs that, by the beliefs that come from you know the people wherever at the top of that hierarchy. But I think there's like a dual obligation from the people at the top to reflect the beliefs and the actions of their constituency as well. Oh, that's interesting because that's not really how churches. I know. Think. <laughs> I know that's not how churches. That's how think. politicians should think, but that's not usually how churches approach it. Right. And, and I I get that, but at the same time, it's like if, if functionally, if you go to most churches or all churches of your de- of this denomination, and everyone is supportive of a certain yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. but then these three people at the very top are like, no, that's not how it works. Well, but that is how it works for everyone who's involved, or everyone all right, the constituents right. believe I that. Mean, and it, uh, most of them do. I would say, like, I've been to many Methodist churches and I have friends who are, like, going through the process to be priests and stuff. And I think that most of them are on board with, like, if, if not openly embracing of it, at least the love everyone doctrine and everyone's equal. So do you think it could be changed to be more, more welcoming to uh, homosexuals, to be more open? I don't know. I mean, I like to imagine that it could, because for me, I grew up in an incredibly religious world of which I did not fit into. But with Methodists, at least I never felt as outside as when you read like memoirs of someone who grew up like, you know, like gay and Catholic. And it's just like, and these two opposing forces never stopped being opposing forces in their Mm -hmm. life. For me, I was like, well, you know, like at least we're nice to people and women can be in charge and that like was less of a thing, so I like to imagine they could still like be a place where people find comfort and things like that. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, when you've got a, forgive me for saying this, but probably a lot of like white conservative men at the top, and I should double check that before I say it. But I would assume it's probably <laughs> it's usually a safe assumption in most safe, organizations. We can fix it in the end if no. And even <laughs> if it's not right now, it certainly has been in the past because the women thing was not forever and always you know something that was embraced so maybe in that sense yeah yeah i mean i think if this um woman truly believes in the methodist church i think she she could very well believe that over time it will change and that she may someday yeah be able to have you know a higher position or a higher status in the church and she she believes in it and she doesn't want to give up on it. And also, you know, we're, we're talking about this like it's a rational decision. It's not, is it? It's, there's a lot of emotional stuff. There's a lot yeah. of faith involved if all your friends are part of it. If you've been part of this organization for, I'm guessing, decades. Yeah. You're not thinking in a, in a disconnected, pragmatic way. Yeah. No, yeah. That's very so true. I would pass her, like, sticking with the, the, the church and not being like, fuck you, I'm leaving. Yeah. Like, I, like, I don't think we can fault her for that if she stays. And that's it's just like, okay, fine. I'm fine. Even though it's not, even though it's kind of shitty for her. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little swayed by you guys. I really wanted to fail her in the beginning. Not because, like, ooh, I want to fail her, but just because my gut reaction is, like... Like, she needs to stand up for herself. Yeah, people have got to stop doing this. Like, someone's got to be like, all right, line drawn in the sand. You're obviously rejecting who I am as a human. I'm going to stop buying in with my whole life to what... I don't know. Yeah. Um, but now I'm a little, I'm a little torn. You guys have some good points. <laughs> oh, debate. I, I'm, I'm gonna uh, respectfully withdraw because I'm not entirely sure as, as a, as a non-religious straight man if I should really be passing or fail gay people in the way they act within the church. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Very, um, very qualified person to be a exactly, passing judgment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm going to, like, sadly fail it, only, and just, like, as a whole, only because, like, I remember situations on a much smaller scale that hit very close to home to this, and I was always like, you know, like, oh, what a what a horrifying parallel to draw, but it's like battered wife syndrome, where you're like, oh. why are you going back to that person who's being terrible to you? And it's like, oh, it's what you know, and it's what, like, supports you, it's what sustains you, it's what's paying for you, it's whatever. Um, you but can you keep, improve. Right, you keep going back, <laughs> yeah. and I feel like people should stop yeah. returning. I mean, I mean, my argument was literally, maybe I could change him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 in the parallel, your argument was maybe you should change him, maybe we should give him a second shot, maybe we should hold on, but mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sadly fail it, yeah. All right, okay. well, uh, that's, been, uh, that's been fail or pass. Let's, let's move on to the next segment. Let's do it. <laughs> Failure of the week. Okay, let's uh, let's get into the next segment. Let's uh, do our little failures of the week. Oh, um, I have so many. There's so many. I guess I guess I can get started here. I don't know how much of this is a, like a traditional failure, but it was something weird that happened to me today, and I want to get your opinions on it. Done. So, so ready. <laughs> I was um, I was at the gym at the near the end of my workout. I was going into like one of the like classrooms to do stuff on mats, like right. like yes, because like, um, that's where that's where the mats are. And I like heard that there was music going on there, so I kind of assumed there was a class. So I didn't know if I was going to be able to go in there. But then I looked, and there was a teacher teaching a class, but the class only had two people. Mm. And then I saw another man who was like in the corner doing stuff on a mat. So I was like, oh, I can go in. So I went, like, took some mats, went down, like, on the other side of the room from them, and was, like, about to get ready to start, like, doing stuff. And then they were kind of in arrest, the, the, the class. And then the woman teaching the class basically told me and the other man to, like, leave because their class still had five minutes left. And I kind of understand it, but I'm like, there are two people in the class, and you're not taking, you don't need to take up the whole room. And we were not like disturbing you yeah. by being on the other side of the room and I felt like kind of foolish and like pushed around leaving but I'm like she kind of has a point but I feel like she's being a little ridiculous mm. what thoughts here this is tough for me because I would be very uncomfortable with people like coming into one of my exercise classes at the end however my gym doesn't have free gym or anything like it. So it would just be a total fucking weirdo walking into an exercise class because we only have classes. And so, like, there is no, like, oh, free space for mats in the back of the room or, like, oh, people who work out on the mats in here during off time. It's just classrooms. Um, so I would think it was really weird, but I have no experience with that kind of gym space. Okay. 
Anyways, <laughs> that's that's my that was my story, and I thought it was a little a little strange. It had never quite happened to me that way before. Huh. All right. Anyways. Do you want a failure next? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So on Friday, I had to get my uh, corporate headshot photos done. Like I had them in the UK, but I don't know if it's just my company or my industry, but Chinese corporate headshots, very formal. Everyone's yes. mm. wearing suits, looking very seriously at the oh, yeah. camera, like crossing their arms, looking very dynamic and That's powerful. my, uh, the picture for, the, yeah. that I have for stand-up for like yeah, all, for yeah. all of our Is showcases. Chinese headshot? It was, yeah, from like two or three years ago. My, so. sorry, I'm gonna let you finish. Sorry. My ex-boyfriend had had major surgery and he had a giant scar running down his neck and they photoshopped it out of his headshots. Yeah, they do that. Like, yeah. they were, so I was, they were making me like put on makeup and stuff. Yep. Like literally my, when I did this in the UK, they were like, yeah, stand outside. We'll get a phone, we'll take a picture of you. Great, stick that in a PowerPoint presentation. Um, it was such a big deal. Um, so I like, you know, I, I wore like a nice shirt for it, went down there, had my makeup, um, and like, I was looking in the mirror and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well turned out. I'm looking, <laughs> looking, looking quite handsome. I'm, I'm quite looking forward to seeing how these come back. And then I was shown the, the pictures afterwards and there is literally not a single picture where I don't look like I kidnap children. <laughs> like a hate. He doesn't, just for our listeners, he doesn't really look like he kidnaps children. <laughs> it's like a side by. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mine is kind of gross, so I'm sorry. Um, so in the past three weeks, I... Um, I have had food poisoning to the number of times that my friends are no longer sympathetic when it happens, they're annoyed. Like, it's like, hey, Ida, can you come out? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm sorry, I have food poisoning again. And people, it now, like, to my friends and even to my boss, I think it sounds like an excuse. Yeah, they think you're making it yeah, up. Yeah, they, they're like, oh, okay, we get it. Like, it's China. You can pretend you ate some weird street food and got sick, but you can't pretend it, like, five times in three weeks. <laughs> you just you really love that hot pot. And so this week I actually got, like, really, really sick, and, and no one was going to care. I left work on Wednesday. I was like, came home. I missed yoga. I like didn't go out. I was just was going to go to the comedy festival, and I didn't. I was just miserably sick. And obviously, like no one was really going to care because this is like the 400th time that this has happened. So I texted my boyfriend every time I threw up and told him. And this is a fail. In retrospect, I'm realizing this was not something that was going to make him like me more. I think you should go further. I think you should, you should put that Instagram account to good use. I really ought to. But I'm realizing like three days later, I was talking to him this morning and I just like had this realization that I texted him like 16 times to be like, I just threw up. And I was like, oh my God, it's a miracle that I still have a boyfriend because like, I can't believe I did that. So that was definitely my fail of the week both getting food poisoning so many times that people no longer believe me and then like overemphasizing it to the point that i think people wish they no longer believed me that was my failure yeah, i think that was I think that was like on par with my gym story i think it was like about the same yeah. in seriousness right yes definitely yes <laughs> about the same 
Just about the same. That yeah. and the Methodist Church. They're all kind of... <laughs> they're all, yeah, they're all, they're all the same all level. equally important. All right. Tell us the biggest thing you've ever failed at. Let's get off of me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. The, 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 the smooth transition there. <laughs> oh, but, oh, I don't know what... I don't know what the biggest thing I've ever it's failed It's okay. We don't before. actually start the show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can if you want to, but we're not going to put you on the spot like that. That's not really how this thing no, works. No, no, uh, it's not. Well, I, so, you, so did I sent you a message the other day, and I was like, oh, Ben, is there anything I should prepare for this? And you were like... Just, just think about you know a few times in your life when when you've maybe failed, um, and it's it's a it's a kind of interesting subject this because in my immediate thought was well I you know and I don't think I've really failed at anything and then you sit down and you kind of think about it and you're like oh fuck everything I've ever done has just been a complete disaster um, I am a terrible human being um, you just don't dwell on it so I think I think so I guess what what were things that you were surprised at that came to mind that you maybe viewed differently as a result of this exercise? Well, I don't know. It's just sort of looking at, um, like, where where my life has gone versus where you expect it to go. And I think mm. everywhere... That's, it's quite the nice thing, actually, about being an expat in Shanghai is if you go back and, like, ask 14-year-old you where you're going to be in your mid-20s, the answer is probably not... Shanghai. Shanghai. Um, so it just it's just I just sort of made me think about like at different points in my life what I wanted to do and what I thought I was gonna do. So what is it that you do now? So my my actual job yes. um, is I work for uh, an international PR agency. Okay. Um, which is what brought me to China, and then I know you guys obviously through uh, doing comedy at KFK and a bit of improv stuff. Yeah. Um, so your headshot probably matters. Sorry, if you were for a PR agency, not to yeah. Like people, people have to trust me. Um, yeah, okay. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So, which makes it doubly unfortunate that not necessarily with their children, but not they have to children. trust you. Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll murder the the opposition. Yeah. Well, what did you? What What were these different? What did you want to be when you grew up? What were these different? So I, the thing I always thought be? I was going to be was a performer. Really? Like ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. Um, because we had, uh, do, we, do you guys know what nativity players? Do you have those? In oh yeah, I do. Um, when, so when we were like, ever since I was about four years of age, cause we did a nativity play at school and I was the innkeeper. It's really bold to go from no religion to you found your passion in life in a nativity play. It's a nativity play. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't wow. really thinking about like the theological aspects of yeah. it, but it's kind of like, it's just a thing everyone does oh, when, for sure. in the UK. So you were the innkeeper. Um, I was the, I was the innkeeper. Um, and I remember like walking to school, like it's one of my first vivid memories and practicing my lines. And normally all the kids, you know, their delivery isn't great. They're about four. So it's always like, and then Jesus went to the inn and he was very happy, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was reciting my lines and my mum said to me, um, so you think you're, you're the innkeeper. It's, it's, it's early in the morning. You're, you're, you're getting interrupted. How do you feel? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And she's like, no, when you, when you come into our bedroom on a Saturday morning at six o'clock to ask if you can watch cartoons, uh, what's it like? And I'm like, oh, well, I, I guess you're annoyed. So I was like, ah, oh, you should, you should play that. So looking back on it, it's like the basics of Stanislavski and kind of yeah, your mom was method your first, acting. Hmm. Um, first director. So it's quite fun to watch the video back now is you see all the other kids just being like, and the star was in the sky. And then there's like four year old me, like a knock the door, just going, Oh, bloody hell, Mary! Oh, <laughs> God's sake! Let me get some sleep! Um, and, then, and then after that, um, because I was quite precocious, people would come up to me like grown ups and just say, uh, uh, you, were, you were really good in the nativity play. And that's where I also learned how to take a compliment because 
when I was four years old, my reaction was, oh, I know. <laughs> I know. And I also remember my mum explaining to me that it's not polite if someone gives you a confident uh, compliment. You should say thank you rather than just go, yeah, you, yeah, I was good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you look beautiful today, I'm aware. Yes. <laughs> okay. No need to tell me. <laughs> but you still do. You, you perform, at least on some level. What, yeah, you do, when yeah you, you do improv here. What kind yeah, of performer did you, did you want to be? Well, I don't know. So, so weirdly, the, the first thing I wanted to do was musical theatre. Um, uh, which, which was just... Cause, again, because I, um, I used to get taken when it was my birthday. So we lived about an hour outside of London. Um, which I appreciate by the standards of any other country is probably in London, but like that's yeah. still by British standards, we're a small country that's still quite far out. It still feels quite far outside. Um, and whenever it was my birthday, we would get taken to see uh, shows in the West End. So like mm. Les Mis, the first thing I saw was Blood Brothers, which was amazing. Mm. Um, and I just remember, I think I saw my first West End show when I was eight years old. It was my eighth birthday watching Blood Brothers, just sort of thinking, oh, this is great. I, I want to do this with my life. I need to do this with my life. Um, so then it all went wrong and I failed and I joined a PR agency yeah but there, there were maybe one or two steps in between yeah <laughs> yeah. did you did you make a, an effort after eight like did you do theatre so I did I did school? all the way through school uh, and I did a lot at university but I think the thing that stopped me pursuing it as a career was I had an audition for uh, the Central School of Speech and Drama like very prestigious mm-hmm. yeah. drama mm-hmm. school in London and the thing that you always get told when you're young and you say you want to be an actor is people tell you, oh, but you know how hard a life it is, you know, mm. there's no money in it, you should only do it if uh, if you think, I think the thing that everyone kept saying was, you should only do it if you can't think of anything else that would make you happy in life. Mm. And I was a teenager and I was just like, yeah, whatever. Um, and then I went for the audition at Central and then I met people who were genuinely like that. Like, they were crazy. Like, people yeah. who you could really imagine just doing terrible things to themselves if they didn't get in. And I was just sort of thinking, do I want this as much as you guys? You guys, because I like acting, but I also like eating and putting a roof over my head and being able to pay for things. Um, so that that's kind of where I started. And the audition was terrible. I didn't enjoy it. The person who was taking it was a dick. Um, so I sort of fell away from it for a few years and didn't do it, do any performing. And then the great blessing of, of coming to Shanghai actually has been stumbling on this this weird comedy world um yeah it's this sort of island <laughs> of broken toys um <laughs> which is which is like no you know it's it's lovely no one comes to shanghai because they want to do stand-up comedy or because right. they want to do improv um but there's a really lovely and really interesting scene here and it's been a really it's been a, a surprise but a really lovely thing to be able to kind of get involved with it and and start performing again so I have a question, and it's actually kind of a question for both of you. I hear that a lot because when I was younger, I, I wanted to be an artist. I almost went to art school for, for university. Um, I used to be a competitive swimmer. I, I think I did a couple of things where it had a very common refrain, which was, you only do this like if you can't imagine that you could do anything else. And I've always kind of loathed that expression. I mean, I understand where it's coming from. I do understand the concept of like, you have to be okay with so much failure to go into something like performance, something like that. But I also have always thought that it's very degrading to the people to do that, that do that. 
that they couldn't fathom doing something else. Like, I'm like, I'm sure that people who are performers, who are, you know, and there's also people who come from a varied backgrounds and end up in something like that, like, that that wasn't the thing that they always thought they were going to do forever always, who are very talented writers or dancers, maybe not dancers, but, you know, like performers, etc., comics. And I, I've always found that to be an incredibly limiting and disingenuous phrase but I think a lot of people find like passion and truth in it or direction did it feel like did that concept to you did it feel freeing to be like oh I don't want it as much as these people so I can I can leave it behind or did it feel like oh I don't want it as much as these people so I don't deserve it as much as they do um I mean at the time like I you know it was it was it was not a good thing but I think that's just because when you have for what 15 years of your life this incredibly tightly held certainty of this is what I'm going to do and then when you get that taken away you then have to work out oh well, I've got to work out what I'm going to do instead now yeah. um, which you know which is which is quite difficult to go through but like having having gone through the other side of it um, I think it's the right advice like I like having the balance of like a job doing a job now which I find interesting and I enjoy and it takes me all over the world and I get to live in Shanghai and then I can also do the fun stuff I can also do the, the stand-up and the improv and I'm not sure how much I would enjoy the stand-up and the improv if I wasn't doing it just for me like you know if it was a, if it was a job mm-hmm. and I had someone telling me don't say this say that you know if there was the pressure on it I think it's it's fun as a creative outlet I'm not sure how much fun it would be if it was a very rigid professional kind of yeah. thing that I did yeah I mean I mean for me like kind of I guess a little differently from the two of you. I was never really a performer or an artist growing up. Um, it, it just wasn't something I did. So I kind of always had a very practical view of like what it is you do when you grow up. Yeah. Just kind of like the the, the box that most people end up, um, you know, fitting in if the in terms of an, of an idea of success. Like oh you you know you go to a good college you get a good job and. Uh, kind of that traditional life and you know I only really stumbled uh, you know upon this whole performing thing very recently mm-hmm. in uh, in my life but I, I have to say like when I'm thinking about the consequences or the implications of if I got more serious yeah and you know like what if I did this full-time for me the biggest reservation in thinking about that is would I be capable of handling the ups and downs that come mm-hmm. with that sort of lifestyle? Uh, I really don't have doubts about like, oh, do I have the work ethic to succeed? Right. Uh, or not, or even like not even as worried about do I have the talent to succeed? It's just would I be able to mentally and emotionally handle the lifestyle um, yeah. that that comes with you know, with choosing a career like that. Yeah, and I like, I've got friends who are in London now who are performers and, you know, you see how hard it is. You see how much it sucks. Yeah. You have to live in a in a, in a place that's way outside the centre of town and you have to spend, like, a, you know, you spend more time driving to places and to do gigs than you spend actually doing gigs and, mm. you know, how much fun is it just doing the same set over and over again? Just, you're not doing it because you want to do it. You're doing it because you have it's to play this club to make a tiny bit of money to mean that you they don't t- switch off your electricity you know um 
But for you, so you, you had this audition and it at least a little bit was good thing because it opened up like, okay, that's, I'm, I'm not going to do this, which I find helpful sometimes. Like that's a no, what's next? But how did you, how did you transition out of that? So it was kind of, so I basically finished uh, university, didn't get into any drama schools and was like, shit, I should probably get a job now. That's what people do. <laughs> um, yeah. And then it was sort of, just, it was, I completely fell into it. Um, when I was in my final year of university, there was a big brouhaha um, because the government put tuition fees up. So before tuition fees were capped at £3,000 a year, Shit. which oh, that's so sounds awful so to cheap. Americans. Um, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And then uh, they weird. they put that up to £9,000, which I appreciate is still low by American standards. But, yeah, but, but that gets about in-state. That, that starts hitting like with in-state tuition for state schools. Yeah. And when you're tripling tuition, no one's going to no one's gonna like that. Yeah. No. And also, the, the tradition in the UK was always that the government pays for you know, for university education. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't going to affect me and my generation personally, but there was a lot of people who just didn't think it was the right thing to do. Maybe they were motivated because they had siblings mm-hmm. or maybe they just thought, you know, ideologically it's something that shouldn't happen. Um, so there was a big student, like a massive student protest movement against it, a lot of marches. Um, you know, there was a big march down in London, which is quite famous if uh, any British people will know it because some guy chucked like a fire extinguisher off the top of the roof of Millbank. There was like windows smashed in. So Millbank is where like the politicians have their actual offices. Mm-hmm. So the House of the Parliament is the is the place where they sit in the right, ceremonial right. place. But after the march, a lot of people just went down to Millbank and started trashing the place and like you know it was all over the news. And then the next day in Manchester, um, everyone came back and was full of this revolutionary fervor. Uh, had another march and decided they were gonna. Uh, quote-unquote, occupy the vice-chancellor's office at the university. Um, so I kind of went, got involved with that. And I mean, like, occupying was just sitting in... Right, right, yeah, sitting. Um, and someone had... In- found out someone had invited a journalist from ITV News, so the local TV news station. Um, and I was kind of like, well, well, this looks shit. This is just a lot of smelly hippies sitting in a room. This isn't really going to advance our cause. So I sort of started ordering people around and told them to put up banners so it would look good on TV and would be like, oh, okay, you know, you're really intelligent and, and coherent and eloquent. You can speak to the journalist. Uh, you're insane. You just don't talk about anything <laughs> but workers' revolution in Palestine. Can you please go over there and not talk to the journalist? And kind of through that, I became, in some ways, the de facto PR person for that kind of movement. And then that died and splintered off, and as, as the left always did, descends into infighting and, and yeah. nothing ever really happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, nothing really came of it. But then I thought, since I decided I needed something to do with my life, I, I might try that direction instead. So I took the, the obvious step and went from doing uh, PR for uh, a left-wing activist group to then work for a multinational corporate PR agency. Right, that which does is seem obvious. obvious. But yeah, and it was you know it's a, it's a it's a great company. I won't I won't mention them by name, but it's a great company. But it's a very high pressure environment. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, my only goal was to get fired at least after six months, so I'd have the six months on my CV. Yeah. And then six years on, I'm still working for the same place. Wow. And 
they sent me to Shanghai and you know I've, I've had some amazing experiences so I owe them a lot so I we love them we hope they don't fire you after this podcast and we still hope that Starbucks one day decides to sponsor us and I still have an unrealistic view of what our listenership is but <laughs> we're, we're, all, we're all drinking Starbucks coffees right now but yep. it's not gonna work I trashed them last week <laughs> but um, I have a couple I have a couple questions so I actually don't see it as, as such a huge jump to go from a, a love of performance a love of theater to being very adept at PR I, I see a lot of natural connections there um, my question is, does the, does the idea of like this crash and burning failure sort of travel over? Because I can see how in a lot of ways, in PR instances, you either like don't see the person who's running PR because they're doing it so well, mm. or in my, in my view, you're called in because it's such a, a clusterfuck that something absolutely needs it. And that could just be me completely not understanding the extent to which people... Employ PR. Yeah, I mean, everyone will have a PR um, department kind of working proactively and doing strategy and also, you know, doing media relations and stuff like that. And they will also, or most good companies will have a crisis PR agency who will do a, like a crisis PR plan just in case. Because, you know, the idea, if, if something bad happens in your company, you know, like some, one of your... Like workers, your Pepsi right now. Like your Pepsi right now. Um... Uh, you know, or your United Airlines. Like, right. if the first thing someone does is go, oh, shit, what do we do now? You're in trouble. Yeah. Like, so the crisis guys at, at my company, so we would do, like, an event where there would be, you know, like, say Lionel Messi is unveiling uh, the new football shirt for Barcelona or something like that. And there would be this massive document with every possible situation. You know, Lionel Messi trips, breaks his foot, is never allowed to play football again. Um, literally national disaster, all of this kind of stuff. So that if any of that happened, you go page whatever, okay, this is what we do. So you're incredibly prepped for failure. You're incredibly prepped. Like, Mm. you know, 99.99% of the crisis work never sees the light of day. But it's just so that the idea is... Because United Airlines, I don't know a client anywhere, um, didn't have to be as bad as it was. But right. a lot of the problem was that is their response wasn't great. Like, you know, there is a certain degree to which you're going to get negative blowback from something like that. Right, but, you but can there limit were probably very key things they could have immediately done, I would assume, that would have helped. Yeah, and also they had a real problem in China because they were so focused on what was going on in the United States. Like, we could all see it because we were here. Like, it just building, snowballing on WeChat, this massive oh, kind yeah, of for sure. perception that this was a, you know, that this guy was Chinese that was beaten up because he was Chinese, all of this stuff. And they could have they could have stopped that about forty eight hours earlier than they did, but they were so focused on the United States, they just didn't notice what was going on in China. Because you know, good PR is amazing. Most most PR is kind of average or terrible. But this, whilst no one was thinking of it in this way, this was a, a real opportunity for United. So if, for example, the CEO, because like everyone hates the air industry in the US, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, this could have been a great moment for United, where say 20, 12 hours later, if the CEO goes on national TV or whatever and says, "All right." I'll admit, we completely messed up and then we talked to people and we found out that everyone hates us. And you know what? We realised that not only does everyone hate us, but everyone hates our competition. And we screwed up as an industry to get in this point. So what we're going to do now is take the leadership 
in making the entire U.S. air industry better. Like I like United more just hearing you say it. Right, right. They could have, they could have, even though they were the ones that fucked up, they could have made it about everyone else too. Well, but also, like the entire eyes of the world were on them. So if they had decided, and there's legal reasons why you can't just come out and apologize, but if they had sort of taken this as a moment and just gone, okay, we screwed up, but we are going to change, and this is what we're going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. And this is what we're going to do to turn the industry around. You can you can really improve. You you can come out of a crisis better. Um, one of my I can't remember the name of the company, but one of my favorite examples ever was there was um, a factory that burnt down. I think it was in Spain, um, and obviously that's a bad thing. The factory burns down. <laughs> yeah. It costs them a lot of money. The workers lose their job. And then what they did was um, I think they sent. I might be misremembering this, but I think they sent every one of their workers one of the charred bricks with a letter. Uh, like attached to it saying we want you to remember this first of all we're going to make a commitment that you're all going to keep your jobs we're going to look after you we want you to keep this brick as uh, as a memento to remember the old factory and then together we're going to come together and rebuild it and we're going to make a better factory and a better company that's going to serve you that's going to serve and like I was watching the oh video oh god I'm such a like, for just <laughs> crying that's so, yeah. that's so romantic and it was great because it was it was you know I was genuinely tearful the first time I watched it and the video like all the people all the work and it's like really nicely shot and all that stuff but the workers are reading it and they're like crying and it's this amazing they turned this really awful thing that happened and I mean like you know if your company did that you'd go into bat for them forever right mm. oh yeah, yeah for sure you'd be you'd be so you know if they asked you to work overtime to rebuild the factory or whatever you'd be like yeah sure we're one of the team. Yeah. Um, so there's a real opportunity and a lot of the times those opportunities get missed yeah I mean so, so PR is obviously a lot about um, spinning different situations do you encounter a lot of people you know in your daily life that kind of look upon your industry in a negative way not so much I think it depends on the clients like so we I think you've, you've got to be ethical like we, we have uh sort of an ethical counsel at the top of the company who if a brief will come in for a company that we're not too sure about they would sit and talk about it i think the the general sort of answer that when you ask most people is that in the same way that everyone in a court of law deserves a defense attorney mm. in the court of public opinion everyone deserves someone to go out to bat for them because you know you can't do everything if a company truly is awful and doing awful things you can't hide that, you know, you can't polish something that's that bad. Um, and a lot of the things I actually learned since working with corporations, you know, coming from this very left-wing background, where as a teenager I just thought all corporations were evil. Right. Um, and then you sort of realise on the day-to-day point of view, with every company there's good things they do and there's bad things that they do. Because co- companies are just people. And there's parts of the company that do that are really good and there's parts of the company that are really bad. Uh, and you know, there's parts, there's companies that want to do good things but can't for various reasons. So it's it, you know, it's a lot more complicated than just company A is evil, company B is good. Work for them and don't work for them. Yeah. yeah. So I have I have a question. You did this huge turnaround with with wanting to do drama or theater. I should probably mention, by the way, that my sister, in a in a weird quirk of fate, does PR for comedians. Really? Yeah, so in a oh. kind of, she, she, you've got like my two things, and then by, by that's, coincidence, she's just at the nexus of all of it. Wow. And, and that's so fun. I want to know your sister. <laughs> but so, so you do PR, and you obviously like your job and you care about it. Um, and you've mentioned that, you know, maybe you wouldn't love like stand up and improv. They're very, like Ben was saying, they're very 
they're very fickle like mistresses they're right you know it's hard to love the ups and downs to the extent that like if it was your job perhaps you know like if being in wicked was your job maybe you wouldn't love Elphaba as much like things kind of fade but do you feel like um the balance that you've struck in your life like with this career and then with comedy on the side does it fulfill like the part in you when you were eight and or four and you were like i'm gonna be the best goddamn innkeeper that this Tiffany play has ever seen or do you feel like you've changed over the course of of your life and that's no longer like really where you see yourself uh that's a good question i feel like i definitely have that here i have a better work-life balance here than i did in london um but i think yeah because what i enjoy about doing stand-up is just it's it's the craft of trying to make a five-minute bit that's funny and it's seeing a bit that's kind of maybe not funny or has potential and trying to sharpen it and you know i don't have particularly ambitions i don't have ambitions to play like mercedes-benz arena or madison square garden or anything like that for me the fun is doing it and it's just as fun doing it at kfk in front of 50 people or however many that it is mm-hmm. um so yeah so, and as long as i can and i'm sort of living i found the sweet spot where i can have the stability of a professional life i like having a place to go every day i like you know having a routine not everyone does but i think that's something i personally need um and then also you know i like going down to the club i like talking to people i like seeing other people develop their stuff i like working on my own i like doing yeah i I think it's a nice combination not everything's perfect because of course it's it's never going to be right i think it's yeah i think it's as good a balance as you can realistically expect so looking back now on like not getting into drama schools is that something that you feel like your, could you imagine if your life had gone in the other direction? If, if for example, had your audition like kicked ass and you'd had somebody who just really clicked with you, they got yeah. it, you knocked it out of the park, and now you're... Do, can you imagine that life, or does it seem... It's difficult, but I mean, who knows? It's sort of, as my friend says, it's the trousers of history. Like, so much of life is just... The, what? the trousers of history. Because oh. there's two kind of legs, and you go oh, to the other. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Because um, there's, there's so, much, so much of life that just... Um, you know, just just swings on a chance thing. So like, someone saw a tweet I posted one day on a whim, and from that I got a job, which meant, you know, I I wouldn't be living in Shanghai if I hadn't have had this job. If I if that one person had, you know, if that one person hadn't seen that tweet, right. I don't end up in Shanghai. They're not totally connected, but it, you know, so you don't know what could have happened. You know, maybe I. Who knows? You know, maybe I get into drama school and I get immediately cast in the National Theatre's production of something. That's probably unlikely. Or do I end up working in a in a shitty bar and but then like meet the love of my life? Who knows what the sort of like Yeah, so you're not you're not a big what ifer. No, I think I think it's just That's okay, neither am I. <laughs> no, you you just you just don't know because there's so many things that you think are gonna be great which go badly and there's so many bad things which end up leading to good things. I think you've just sort of Embrace the fail. So what... Uh, ben gave a thumbs up, which yeah. none of our viewers yeah. listeners can Embracing see. the fail. It's what we do here. Yeah, it is what we do here. So um, so for you now, like being farther out, kind of having gone through this, and you, and you seem kind of content with where your life is, or at least where it is for right now, how do you, you know, you say embrace the fail, but how do you view failure now like what is your because I guess when you're in drama school like failure is like not getting the audition it's so Mm. clear cut right like 
Um, or like you don't get the part that seems like a very obvious like oh bummer that's not what I wanted but but for, for where you are in your life now kind of how do you view failure well I think you've not you've just got to not take it personally and I think you know there's there's this it's it's the phrase everyone in Silicon Valley uses and it's a horrible phrase but I like you know fail forward I like the sentiment behind it where you know you fail hard you fail quickly you learn things and then you move on because you, know, you still fail on a daily basis you, you lose clients you lose pitches you maybe make mistakes in, in work and you know we've, we've all got up on stage and said things that we thought were going to be what? funny and no. have not been funny. No. <laughs> never <laughs> never not once always this week <laughs> so, so I think you've just got to sort of identify the part of it that you can change and go okay I, I'm not going to take that personally but I'm going to look at what I can change from that and then you also identify sometimes it's your fault sometimes it's not sometimes you lose a bit of business because there's just not the chemistry with someone and there's nothing you can do about that sometimes it's a slow night in the comedy club and people aren't laughing at your jokes and they kill another night. So you've just got to appreciate that that's other factors. Oh yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's every night. No, no. Just, yeah. The whole not taking failure personally is, um, cause it's all, cause for me and I think a lot of people, whenever as a comedian or, or otherwise, if you have failures, you say, well, what can I learn from this? What can I do differently next time? Yeah. And sometimes the lesson is, you literally can't do anything different next time. There's nothing you did wrong. There are just factors beyond your control and it did not go as well as you wanted and there's nothing you could have done about it. And I think comedy is a great way of learning that lesson because the, like, the thing that everyone says to you when, when you Sometimes there comedy, are ways that you could have done things differently, but sometimes there just yeah. aren't. Yeah. Because the thing that everyone says to you when you tell them you do comedy is like, oh, I could never do that. I could never get up on stage because what if nobody laughs? But then you realize that if you get up on stage and no one laughs, you're still alive at the end of it. Like, you yeah. know. So I, I think that one thing you said is really interesting because I don't know if we've had this point particular come up on the podcast before and we're many hours in <laughs> doing this podcast. Um, so you're talking about Silicon Valley, which got me thinking about, you know, lean into failure. And I was seeing, I was listening to the 1A podcast with NPR, which is sort okay. of news-based. Okay. And they were talking to Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah. Of course, yeah. she's big on, like, lean in. Mm-hmm. And she would, but she was talking about the death of her husband. And she was talking about, like, going through the grieving process, which is not necessarily, like, a failure, of course. But it's certainly not something you, you hope for in life. And she was saying one of the hardest things is to learn to say, like, you know, you start to blame yourself and you're like, oh, what if I could have done this and was this my fault? And she was like, sometimes the answer is yes, it was my fault. And you kind of said, like, you know, sometimes you like have an issue at work or you do something and sometimes you're like, oh, it wasn't my fault. Like, I'll move past it. I'll learn from it. And sometimes you're like, oh, shit, that's definitely on me. Like, I fucked that one up. Um, But the important thing is like unless you can change it it doesn't matter like, right and so like I, do you do you feel like that's harder because for me that's always the worst when I can I harp on stuff from when I was like eight and I'm like oh man that was me that was my fault and I still like we do this podcast and I leave every week being like you talk about these things that you want to believe in like you should really <laughs> tap yeah. down and forgive your eight-year-old self for that fuck up yeah. do you feel like it's it's harder to when it when it is something that you can obviously a failure a lost client a, a set you bombed because you wrote a joke that just wasn't funny and you should have known that and yeah. you know do you feel like it's harder with that i find that infinitely difficult 
I mean, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's I'm sort of saying this, but I appreciate that it's not always the easiest thing in the world to do and it's not something that I necessarily always find easy. But I think, you know, it's a kind of like emotional brain versus logical brain kind of thing. I think you've just got to try and clamp that down as much as possible. And, you know, you look at things where you fucked up and you just go, look, I made that mistake. I'm really sorry. I, I will just here's what I'm going to do to try and make sure that I don't make that mistake again in future. Um, that yeah. was a very PR answer. Very PR I'm answer. very proud of you. I think, I think, and also I think you should be, you should be very nice to your eight year old self. Also you were eight, like eight year olds, <laughs> eight year olds are fucking idiots. Oh, I didn't know. I did all kinds of things, you know? Wow. <laughs> I, had, I had no idea you, you're, you have trouble forgiving your eight year old self. Oh, pick a year, man. Pick a year and I can I can throw out a thing that I probably still count as a failure from but that year. Kids are stupid. You yeah. Twenty five year olds are stupid. Twenty five year olds are stupid. <laughs> Um, my question is, am I ever going to hit a point where I don't feel like, oh, that was a stupid year? <laughs> no, I, I think I think we all I think we all do it. I right, think it's yeah. fine. Um, our lives are just a succession of fuck ups, and then we die. So I wouldn't really worry about it. Good. Yes, that is a very positive note. I think that's. Where ben, <laughs> I think that's where Ben was hoping I'd get this podcast eventually. We're right? all just dust and ash, and nothing matters. Okay, that was that was awesome. Alex, thank you for coming on the show. This is super interesting, fantastic. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that's been the failure show. Until next time. Bye. Bye.